0: Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry.
1: And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Claudine, this is our last podcast of the year, and we're going to be talking about the pandemic. And while this is the last podcast of the year, it's not going to be the last podcast about the pandemic, is it?
0: I fear you may be right, Chuck. We were going to talk about the pandemic in this final edition of the podcast for the year, even before Omicron was detected, weren't we? And there were several reasons for that, not least of which the fact that mutations have been for some time a persistent threat. And one of the reasons that I think we have a real responsibility, actually, as risk consultants and COVID monitors to be keeping the pandemic on people's radars. But now with Omicron spreading really rapidly around the world, It feels urgent to be talking about the pandemic again, and I am getting flashbacks to December 2020.
1: It kind of feels like the beginning all over again. We're lucky in this edition of the podcast in that we're going to be joined by somebody who we work with almost every day, Claudine. This podcast brings together the editorial team of our Global Pandemic Recovery Monitor. This is something that Control Risks publishes every Monday and Thursday, and it's designed to help. Companies anticipate the level of disruption that the pandemic may or may not bring in the coming days, weeks, and months.
0: We never imagined when we stood up this monitor back in March 2020 that it would still be going, did we, Chuck? But we're really proud of it. And we have a fantastically loyal group of clients who are subscribing to it long term. And that is testament to, I think, a real understanding among all of us that this pandemic is not going anywhere anytime soon.
2: I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to see some sort of more global, holistic approach as we move into what will be the third year of the pandemic. Has the world really learned from this pandemic and will it respond in the same way or differently for the next one? And certainly that's a question that we're seeing a lot of public health experts raise right now.
1: That's Allison Wood, a director in our political risk consultancy based in our office in Houston.
0: Allison, tell us a little bit about how the pandemic feels for you right now, sitting over in the US.
2: You know, I remember being at Thanksgiving holiday celebrations a couple of weeks ago and thinking, you know, we really might kind of be on the other side of this. We're once again gathering as a family to celebrate a holiday. I had even been discussing with my family the possibility of making a trip to London at some point early next year to see you, my colleagues and 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 friends. And then of course we had Omicron that sort of was announced, if you will, or discovered the next day. And needless to say, I haven't booked any flights. But I do think a lot of people here had sort of you know, started to resume more normal activities. Infection rates in parts of the u s. have been quite low for a little while, that's certainly over the past couple of weeks. And so I think now people are sort of stealing themselves for the potential to once again have to be more cautious and more aware of their activities and the risks that that might present to them, at least on a personal level.
0: yeah. I, my daughter brought home from school with her yesterday. A big white envelope full of books with a sticker on it saying, open in the event of another lockdown in January. And I can't tell you how far my heart sank through the floor. I really was sure that we weren't ever going to go back to school closures. And now they're potentially on the cards again. And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, Alison. What's going to happen? Are we being overly alarmist and fearing the worst unnecessarily? What's your take on how things are going to evolve with the pandemic into 2022?
2: We've seen several governments in Europe institute lockdowns. We've seen mask mandates come back into place in certain cities and countries and whatnot. And I think looking forward towards the new year, certainly I think that there will be this continued level of caution around Omicron and as we see cases tick up. But I do think there will necessarily be a pivot in governments' and in businesses in the way that they are assessing the risks that are coming out of the pandemic and and how to approach and handle those, right? So that comes in the way that the sort of data points that various leaders and businesses are using to make decisions, it can come in the ways that certain types of restrictions are being put in place. But I also think, you know, we will see certain types of Behaviors, I guess, continue to evolve as the pandemic does as well.
1: Allison, do you think that some of the questions that companies are asking about the pandemic as it unfolds are themselves evolving as well? I mean, I can recall that in the earlier phases of the pandemic, the overwhelming majority of questions were of an incredibly practical nature and revolved to a certain degree around travel. Lately, I feel like companies are talking about The relationship between the public and the government and the emergence of protest and social cohesion. Have you sensed that as well? Are are clients looking at a different set of issues going forward?
2: I think businesses need to be looking at a different set of issues than they were two years ago when this pandemic first started. Certainly, everyone has evolved during that period and businesses have had to as well. And I think interestingly, one of the things we've started to see, right, is various responsibilities for enforcing mandates or ensuring that certain documentation is in place before certain activities can happen. That's increasingly less the role of governments necessarily, and more the role of venues or of companies or of individuals who are in charge of of checking this type of documentation, or in some cases, even putting in place their own rules and restrictions to guard against the spread of COVID, right? So I I think that first of all, we've seen that and that has necessarily sort of shifted the view of some businesses. But to speak to the broader question, I do think we've also seen businesses, I think you're right, less focused on some of these tactical issues and sort of more around how this is raising other issues around social cohesion and protests, and increasingly with with mandates being put in place in some countries, how they're dealing with employees and workforces that are either hesitant or maybe even refuse to get vaccinated outright.
1: Moving forward from something that you just said, Alison, I kind of want to pull on one of those strands and discuss or ask or just say this observation that we've noticed over the evolution of the pandemic. And that is at the very beginning of the outbreak, we saw a very heavy handed government role in pandemic management. And then as a result, I suppose, of, of time and of fatigue and of the increasing complexity of pandemic management, and as you referenced, you know, sensitive issues like mandates, governments have developed a real set of slopey shoulders. And there's been this global transference of risk with a couple of standout exceptions. There, there's been this global transference of the burden of risk from the public sector to the private sector. And as the questions get harder and harder, governments get less and less eager to grasp them and are turning to companies and saying, sort yourself out, make your own decisions.
0: And you know what? I think that that trend is one reason there's a question that is still being asked that was asked a lot at the beginning. And I know you guys have been asked it a lot too. And that is the the, the age old, what is everyone else doing? And I think that still feels like an acutely important question for companies because of that real sense of responsibility being on their shoulders and an awareness that it's on the shoulders of their peers as well.
2: And I think that kind of also speaks to increasingly, as Chuck was saying, as the governments have become less prescriptive in what sort of restrictions need to be put in place You kind of, at least here in the US, I've certainly felt it become more of almost a social pressure to comply with certain recommendations, such as mask wearing or social pressures around what one should and shouldn't do in the current stage of the pandemic. And I think, you know, that kind of feeds into that, what is the other person doing type of sentiment as well. I think people don't want to seem too far out of line with what others are doing for fear that. They might have to deal with backlash, perhaps, from employees that are seeing other friends or families, companies taking different approaches to the pandemic.
1: I think that's right. And, but you know what? It's also sort of plus a change, because whatever the risk may be, most companies always want to know what everybody else is doing. And whether it's pandemic management, or whether it's integrity risk, or compliance risk, or any other risks that we talk with our clients about, everyone's constantly looking over their shoulders.
0: So we were going to be talking about this for our last podcast of the year before Omicron was detected. And one of the reasons for that was because there is, there has always been and, and will continue to be a persistent risk of mutation. And one of the reasons that that is so much top of our minds as analysts monitoring COVID is an awareness that The overall vaccination levels globally are still actually pretty low, and that the levels of vaccination in lower income countries are way off, years off the levels that they need to be at for us to be at a point where we're talking about having moved beyond the pandemic. And yet, it's really hard to get a sense of what's going to change that would reduce that risk of mutation in the context of really low levels of cooperation internationally and the geopolitical environment being as fractious as it is. What's your take on the potential for a more collaborative international approach to tackling the pandemic and managing this mutation risk, Alison?
2: Well, if I'm brutally honest, I think I'm pretty pessimistic uh, about that. And, And I think that's in part based on the track record of governments and global community thus far. In the early days of the pandemic, we sort of saw governments sort of come together to address the issue, but increasingly then break off. And there was a real fragmentation in terms of different governments' approach to the pandemic, right? We sort of had the zero COVID camp with countries like China and for a long time, Australia and New Zealand, not wanting to accept any sort of risk in the form of case load and then we had other places that really hardly ever had any restrictions in place at all and and really remained fairly open for for certain durations of the pandemic or lifted restrictions quite early on and never really put them back into place and i think that really set the stage i guess you could say for what we then saw when vaccines came onto the scene right which despite you know calls from the who and other international bodies to take a more equitable approach to vaccine distribution we've seen wealthier countries prioritize the vaccination of their own populations and mechanisms that were designed to facilitate the distribution of vaccines to lower and middle income countries covax being the sort of the largest and marquee organization for doing that really not fail completely but but not be able to sort of achieve the objectives that they had set out for themselves. And, you know, we've seen some countries sort of start to pick up the slack. Certainly the U.S. has made pledges in recent months to donate more vaccines to the developing world in an effort to bring up those vaccination rates globally. You know, it's recognized that that is necessary in order to bring the world past the pandemic I don't know that that's really been a sign of cooperation, right? We've seen the U.S. kind of unilaterally do this rather than being able to bring together, say, a coalition of countries that are going about this in a sort of rigorous and methodical fashion. I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to see some sort of more global holistic approach as we move into what will be the third year of the pandemic? Has the world really learned from this pandemic and will it respond in the same way or differently for the next one? And certainly that's a question that we're seeing a lot of public health experts raise right now.
1: We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment, but if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand What's going on in the world control risks also publishes a global pandemic recovery monitor produced by our team of analysts around the world and released every monday and thursday if you'd like to subscribe our contact details are linked in the podcast notes
0: if you'd like to talk to alice and chuck or me about how we can support your organization to manage the pandemic and its consequences get in touch certainly here in the uk Now we're racing to respond to Omicron with a phenomenally ambitious booster rollout program. But there's really very little discussion publicly about the merits of doing that versus actually perhaps doing more to help lower income countries increase their own levels of vaccination. It seems as if the the vaccine diplomacy that we've seen play out over the last year has been a great illustration of the state of geopolitics, doesn't it?
1: I think one of the more frustrating things about being at this phase of the pandemic is not just, as both of you have have eloquently encapsulated, it's, it's not just about what's happening in the relationships between and among countries in combating the pandemic. But I think it's also a difficulty and, and a problem or a bad habit in the way governments domestically are looking at the pandemic. And that is when you hear countries say that they're entering a third, a fourth. A fifth wave of infection. It's the completely wrong framing of the problem to my mind. And and it's that sort of short termism that is another sort of setback or another obstacle to a durable and tolerable solution to pandemic management. And when you have this sort of accordioning in and out of restrictions and, and relaxations and rising infection rates and dropping infection rates.
0: And you know, actually, Chuck, that's quite an interesting contrast with the way that companies, they are actually in a pretty on a pretty stable footing, aren't they? They've baked in managing the pandemic globally. There were teams stood up at the start of the pandemic who took on new responsibilities, which have proved to be fairly long-term. And although there are still fresh challenges emerging. And I think vaccination mandates are probably one of the biggest for companies to navigate over, over the course of 2022. That There's a degree of consistency and stability to the way that companies have baked in pandemic management now, which to my mind stands, stands in quite a contrast to, as you say, the slightly more short-term, unpredictable nature of, of some of the decision-making we see from government.
1: Initially, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think companies fell into three groups. And that was those that were reasonably well-prepared for a development like this. Those that were unprepared perhaps for a a crisis of this depth and extent, but adapted quickly. And then those who were completely taken by surprise and were at sea for months. Um, I think most companies now have sort of reached some form of equilibrium and have come out of the acute crisis management phase of the pandemic. And I think that they've been brought to that position, sometimes willingly, sometimes kicking and screaming, sometimes easily, sometimes with great difficulty, (laughs) but they've been brought there by their global footprints, they've been brought there by their customers, they've been brought there by their suppliers, and they've been brought there by their employees who have been demanding consistency across the board. And it's an interesting contrast to draw when you think about it, I mean, you've got a single company. With a global footprint managing this pandemic, maybe even better than a country with a footprint described by borders, but very little consistency inside those borders.
2: As you were saying, Claudine, we've had these teams sort of stand up, and suddenly we've all become much more familiar with variants and viruses and things like caseloads and all of this sort of new vocabulary, if we will, about the pandemic. And one of the things that we've spoken to in past podcasts and certainly with the work that we're doing with clients is just how companies are using data and indicators to manage the pandemic and sort of make decisions. And certainly this is something that we've seen governments do as well, right? Sort of tie certain restrictions to numbers effectively, right? Uh, whether it's caseloads per capita or, or total caseloads. And what we're starting to see is that the data points and indicators that mattered in the early stage of the pandemic are no longer the most important ones. If we can all think back to that Johns Hopkins map that was everywhere and everyone's kind of staring at that watching the caseloads tick up. And I feel like we've had a bit of that again with the Omicron variant, right? We now are sort of tracking how many countries and how many states here in the U.S. we've seen this variant appear. But is that really the information that we should be basing these decisions on? One thing we've noticed in trying to fulfill some of the requests that our clients have is that while most governments have got on board with reporting cases, it's actually much harder to get that data on things like hospitalizations, even though ideally that seems like it would be the metric that people should be using to make decisions.
0: That's a good point, Alison. And that continues to be a real challenge for companies with a global footprint when they're trying to implement their policy and and they're looking for data points that they can track globally, and actually it's just completely impossible to, for some of them to be tracked globally for all the reasons you've just outlined.
1: Alison, if we kind of agree, among the three of us at least, that companies are sort of in the zone now on the tactical when it comes to pandemic management, what are the strategic issues that you think are going to emerge, not just in 2022, but issues that the pandemic has thrown up that perhaps might not even go away once the pandemic does, or I should say if the pandemic does?
2: If it's a good question there, Chuck, and that's maybe something we can we can come on to talk about. But I think that for businesses, right, where at the end of the year, people are finalizing budgets we're finalizing strategies for next year in many cases. And so I think this is something that is front of mind for a lot of leaders of organizations. And I think for them, there's no doubt that the pandemic will continue to be a live issue in 2022, right? It's going to continue to put a damper on international business travel, perhaps meeting a person in some locations, on employees' motivations to come back to the office and, and meet in spaces. But I think increasingly, there's a realization that that's maybe no longer the biggest issue that companies are dealing with, right? And this will vary depending on the footprint of a company and the sector, of course. But I think we're seeing Gradually, the pandemic becomes subsumed into other types of issues that are now sort of rising to the top of the risk register for businesses. So, an example here, I think maybe is the sort of supply chain crisis that we're seeing in so many parts of the world. And certainly the origin of that crisis might have been with COVID, right? It was the fact that ports were being shut down, factories were being shut down, planes weren't flying, all of these types of things combined. But it's really taken on sort of a life of its own, if you will, and spotlighted many of the deficiencies and shortcomings of global supply chains. And the solution to that is not necessarily going to be the pandemic ending, right? There are a whole host of other decisions that companies are now making around supply chain that are sort of independent of the state of the pandemic itself. I think I kind of point to that as as one example of something that's taken on a life of its own, if you will. And then I think another question, too, is maybe, you know, just kind of the future of work, right? The return to offices. We've once again seen some prominent companies push back return to office dates into late 2022. But for many of us, we're at least, you know, coming back to the office part time or maybe have for certain parts of the pandemic. But I think, you know, businesses are starting to see this less as kind of a tactical thing and more as a strategic thing, right? Where are we hiring people? What do our spaces look like? How are we interacting with clients? And how is that changing our business model over the longer term? I think we're seeing this kind of shift away from the pandemic, like we were saying earlier, as side of a moment of crisis through to just another thing that's on the risk register and something that you factor in with decision making.
0: Alison, one of the things that really strikes me talking to our clients about future of work related issues is how far any of them are from resolving Those big questions about what the future of their offices is and how they're going to be able to sustain a company culture and so on. I think it's also going to be interesting to see how the pandemic has shaped expectations of young people who have been going through their further education and entering the workforce during COVID as well. I think they will have very different perceptions about the world. And perhaps there might also be some skills gaps which companies need to fill in the coming decades as well.
1: Allison, it's the end of the year. First of all, are you making a New Year's resolution? And secondly, how do you think the pandemic ends?
2: Oh, New Year's resolutions. I always feel so much pressure around this, but I think mine is to work on some of the foreign languages I've studied a bit more. Um, so I've attempted Arabic and, and French over the years. And since moving back to the US two years ago, I've, I've had very few opportunities to use those at all. So for, you know, when I think about next year and the pandemic, you know, we've kind of already talked about how Omicron has been a bit of a setback, but I think increasingly that, what's that phrase about March, you know, in like a lion out like a lamb or something like that. I, I don't know that that's quite the t- right turn of phrase here, but I don't think that there's necessarily going to be this sort of V-day moment against the pandemic, right? Where everyone can declare it over, the streets filled with people, there's fireworks, you know, we almost kind of had that moment, I think, when vaccines were first introduced. But I think that it will kind of evolve over time. And like we've talked about in the past, it will gradually become endemic. And I also think that people's risk columns are gradually going to adjust, right? I think that over time, people will still recognize that there's some sort of risk in meeting people in person or traveling or whatnot, but you kind of take that into uh, just as one of the many risks that you might encounter in your daily life, right? For example, getting into a car and buckling your seatbelt or not sort of as a personal mitigation choice that you take. And so I kind of wonder too, if that will happen both on a personal level and within the business environment, like I was saying earlier, as it just kind of fades into one of many considerations that businesses have when they think about their operations and strategy.
1: Claudine, same question. How do you think the pandemic ends? But before that, what are you going to do differently or better in 2022?
0: I want to be spending less time with Outlook open. I don't want to have my my inbox driving my day. I want to be a bit more focused on achieving particular goals and not so much on on just keeping up with the constant and relentless flow of emails.
1: Now, that's a resolution anyone can support.
0: Do keep me on my toes on that one, Chuck, genuinely. As for the pandemic, look, are ever the optimist. I am confident that we are moving in the right direction, very much aligned with Alison and her thinking around, you know, the, it, this is not going to be a sort of big bang moment when it's, when it's all done and dusted. And I think there will be a pretty challenging period of time where there are parts of the world where it is feeling like it's over and other parts of the world where it very much is not for a variety of reasons whether you're in an environment where there's still a zero covid strategy being pursued by the government and closed borders or whether you're in an environment where there just isn't access to vaccine for example and so that that stark difference between the world that's progressed out and the world that's stuck in i think is going to become more stark and i think that will be something quite tr- tricky for companies with a global footprint to manage i think that will intensify as a challenge But broadly speaking, I think we are moving in the right direction and hopefully things like travel will become a little bit less complicated over time. And also, you know, as well as vaccine developments, I think there is a constant stream of really positive developments with respect to treatment for COVID-19. So I'm hopeful that this time in a year, we won't be sitting socially distant with masks on.
1: Claudine, I make the same resolution every single year and the pages of the calendar turn with mixed success every time i do it and that is to read more books sometimes i do sometimes i don't and if i can just sort of muster the gray matter and the attention span and the focus to to consistently read a book without falling asleep i'll be good for 2022 and i think that my view of of how or when or if this all ends echoes a lot of what you guys have said uh, you know i'm a little bit of a pessimist and i'm a little bit of an optimist the pessimist in me says that this will end in part with an incredible numbing of the public towards disease and death. And, you know, I think both of you have stated that differently by saying it's an adjustment in your outlook on risk. I I think it will become a real sort of a, a bit of an anesthetic state towards what's happening around us. And then also I do have some faith in, or I suppose I should say confidence in medical innovation, less so I think on vaccination. I think that the end of the pandemic, if that's what we're going to discuss, at least hypothetically, I think it's going to come in a pill.
0: Alison, thank you so much for joining us. It was my absolute pleasure to be with you guys today.
1: Happy New Year, Alison. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world.
1: You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicki Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now.
0: And goodbye from me.